Good morning, Elevation Church. How are y'all doing? This side of the room's awake. We do this. It moves back and forth. Sometimes it's this side. I don't know what it is, man. Y'all like coordinate your non-sleeping or something? I don't know. I don't know. Garage sale people. You know, there's a lot of sunburned people in the house today. There's some sunburned people. There's some folks with some sore muscles. We had our garage sale yesterday, the church-wide garage sale to help fund our student ministry mission to Oklahoma. And uh, we had a goal of raising $1,000 yesterday at this garage sale, right? We raised, God's good. God will mess with your goals now. If you'll set some goals that are bigger than you and just let God do what God does, you do the work and let him take care of the rest. We raised about $1,300 yesterday at the garage sale. So thank you for all of you who donated your stuff. And thank you for all of you who put your time and muscle and energy and effort into running that garage sale yesterday. It was a big success. And it is going to bless us big time as we go to Tahlequah, Oklahoma this summer to serve some autistic kids at their summer camp up there, Camp Gray Squirrel, and as we also serve that local community by sharing the gospel of Jesus. So big time praises to God for that. It was really, really cool. So I will give you an excuse for being a little bit off this morning if you'll give me an excuse too because I'm sunburned and sore as well. So uh, you know what? We have been in a series here called Red Ink for like ever. <laughs> We're in April, right? We started this the second week of January. And I told you then, I didn't know how far it would go, how long it would run. But the whole idea of this series is getting into the actual words that Jesus said during his three-year ministry. And we have not covered, nor will we cover, every single word that Jesus said. But we have made some tracks through scripture. We've covered a lot leading right up into Easter, covering the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And on that Easter Sunday, I promised you we would spend at least the next two weeks talking about what Jesus did and what Jesus said in the days and the weeks after he rose from the dead. Last week, we left off with Jesus walking with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, this was on Resurrection Sunday. These are the first two chronologically that we think Jesus appeared to. And they're walking to Emmaus, just going down the road seven miles from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus. And Jesus joins in with them and they didn't recognize Jesus. Don't know how that happened. Talked about that last week. I can't explain it. They should have recognized him, but they didn't. But then they got to the town of Emmaus and all the way Jesus had just opened up the scriptures, the word says, and really shown them all throughout the Old Testament, all of the Messianic prophecy, what was supposed to happen, what had to happen, is exactly what did happen with Jesus. And these guys were blown away. And they got to Emmaus, and Jesus made like he was going to go on, remember? And he hung out with them because they compelled him. Like, oh, come on, come hang out with us. We want to we hear some more. They didn't say that, but you know that's what was in their hearts. We want to hang out with you. You're kind of like cool and stuff and you know scripture better than we do and and they brought him in and they were having a meal together and Jesus did something really cool that he had done several times he took the bread he blessed the bread he broke the bread and he gave them the bread and in the taking blessing breaking and giving they got it they recognized Jesus this was something they had seen played out over and over in his ministry, and even recognized it being played out in their lives. Jesus 
or God taking them, God blessing them, God breaking them, and then God giving them out. And they recognized Jesus, and poof, he was gone. What a bummer. You just walked seven miles with the Lord, the one that you saw crucified. You just, oh my goodness, had the moment where it dawned on you, that's Jesus, and boom, he's gone. Can you imagine what those two dudes were going through? What just happened? And so they got up, and they went back to Jerusalem. And they went back to find the apostles and the other disciples and to tell them what they had seen. Because they were freaking in a good way. But they were kind of freaked out when he disappeared. So they ran back to Jerusalem. They told the disciples and the apostles. And we left off there in Luke 24 last week. And if you have your Bibles this morning, open them up to Luke chapter 24. If you've got your uh, electronic Bible on your iPhone or your smartphone app or whatever, open that thing up. I promise I won't call you out for texting unless I see your thumbs flying around a little too fast. Then I'll bust you. I was taking notes. Uh Uh-huh. Seen that before. All right, so go ahead, open up your Bibles. Luke chapter 24. We're going to pick up today with verse 36. We're going to continue with what happened with Jesus after the resurrection. We're going to continue with what Jesus said and what Jesus did after he appeared to Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus and after they ran back. So there they are, Cleopas and his buddy who had walked to Jerusalem, or walked from Jerusalem to Emmaus with Jesus. They have seen him, he's revealed, they poof, he's gone, they run back, and here we are with verse 36. You guys ready? While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, y'all have anything to eat? I'm sure he didn't say y'all, but you're with me, right? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took the fish, and he ate it in their presence. I love how Jesus walks into a situation and just knows. He knows what's going on. He knows what's in their hearts. He knows what's in their minds. He walks in, and the first thing he says is, peace be with you. Ding, 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 ding. I know you're troubled. I know y'all are freaking out. I know these two guys just ran back to you and said they saw me, and you're like trying to process This is two times in one day. Mary this morning, now Cleopas and his friend, and you're trying to figure what's going on, what's happening. Jesus is not in the grave, and he's popping up in these places and appearing to people, and they're scared and troubled, and Jesus says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He's, hey man, relax. It's me. It's me, Jesus, your teacher your friend, your Lord. Look, touch me. Touch me. See? See the holes? See the hole? I'm real. Still got some doubts? Give me some fish. Want to munch down? Ghosts don't eat. You know that if you read Harry Potter. Right? And, And the disciples are like, 
And it says they still were having a hard time believing because of joy and amazement. You ever seen something? Like, you ever go to a magic show? Trina and I were in Vegas back in November for a couple of days. I wanted to go to a magic show so bad. We didn't do it. But I love going to those things because I know it's not real, but I like to try to catch them in the act. I want to figure out what their trick is, you know. But have you ever gone to one and they pull off one of those massive stunts and you're just like, whoa, I'm having a hard time, I believe, I'm having a hard time believing what I just saw because everything in me, all the logic, everything I've learned in all of my life says that can't happen. That's where these guys are. They're like, but wait, this isn't logical. This is like physically kind of like impossible. And Jesus says, touch me. He says, see me. I'm not a ghost. This isn't a dream. I'm real. Pinch yourselves. Brothers and sisters, I'm alive. I am risen. I'm alive. And they were astounded. Check out what Mark chapter 20 Verse 24 says, I don't know if I can keep up with myself here. Where am I? Mark chapter 20. Hmm. I didn't mark it in my Bible. Let's turn around and read it. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, hey, you know what? We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, if I put my hand into his side where the spear went in, right? I'm not going to believe. And a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, and Jesus again appeared. He came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting, Jesus says. Stop doubting and believe. That's Jesus' message in the days right after, the weeks right after his resurrection. And that's Jesus' message to the world today. Hey, stop doubting the resurrection. Stop doubting Easter. Stop doubting that I'm alive and believe. Stop doubting and believe. But what does it take to overcome that little voice in your head, that little grip of doubt, that touch of fear? What does it take to get past that doubt and to start believing? Does it take proof? Does it take proof? Or does it take faith? Because proof and faith are different things. Faith, the Bible tells us, is, is believing, having hope in something we cannot prove, something we cannot physically touch or see. It's having faith that it's real, having faith in the hope that the resurrection is real. It's not a blind faith. It's not an empty faith. It's not a, I said so and so that's the way it is kind of a faith. Faith isn't like that. It's not proof where it's absolute and you can touch it, feel it, prove it out mathematically, systematically, whatever. But there's more to faith than just, I believe something I can't prove or see. I believe just because you told me to believe. I believe because my parents believed. I believe because the pastor said believe. Because Todd believes. Todd has faith, so I'll have faith in Todd. Don't have faith in me. Have faith in Jesus. Have faith that what he is, is real, is alive, is resurrected. 
Faith, Hebrews 11.1, 1, it's believing in the things that we can't see. What does faith do? When we have faith, what does faith do? Well, faith, the Bible says, can heal you. Faith, the Bible says, can save you. It can purify you. The word says that we're purified by our faith. We can be sanctified. We are sanctified by faith. We are justified by faith. We are made righteous by faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith's a powerful thing, isn't it? By grace, God's grace, which we cannot earn, we have been saved through faith, through believing that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he does what he says he will do. Romans 10, 17 says, Consequently, faith comes through hearing the message. Oh, and by the way, the message comes through hearing the word about Christ. And today, we're not just going to hear about Christ, we're going to hear the words of Christ. And through the words of Jesus, I believe we can have our faith built. Through what Jesus did, I believe our faith will be built. Through what his followers did and said, I believe our faith today can be built. And if you're struggling, like the disciples and the apostles were struggling to believe and to have faith, then today I believe your faith muscles may be built up to the point where you can make a faith decision and really believe Jesus is risen and alive and valid in your life. Jesus appeared, biblically, at least six times. At least six times after the resurrection. Some scholars believe as many as 12. But we're going to go with six because we know biblically we can document biblically at least six. Some of the 12 may be because somebody read something in one gospel account and it sounded different in another gospel account, and that could be credited to just two different people writing it. So we're going to go with the six. At least six times post-resurrection, Jesus appeared to people, and he appeared at least those six times and at least one of those times to as many as 500 people at one time. Now, at the time when the scriptures were put in writing, the New Testament scriptures, the Gospels, many of those 500 were still alive and could have refuted, could have rejected publicly the account of Jesus' appearance. So there's some credibility to what the Bible says here, even if you wonder about the reliability of the scriptures. Handed down over generations, not sure, translations, all this stuff. Hey, these guys were still alive. They could have said, not true. And there's no historical evidence, biblical or otherwise, that says that. At least six times, at least one of those times, to as many as 500 people. This took place over a stretch of 40 days. A biblically significant number, by the way. If you think about the, the, all the things in the Bible that took place over 40 days. Jesus fasted for 40 days before he was tempted. The flood was 40 days. A lot of 40-day scenarios. 40 days, Jesus walked on the earth. 40 days, his tomb stood empty while he walked around among the people, talked to people, appeared to people, encouraged people, shared the truth of his resurrection with the people. 40 days. By the way, the tomb remains empty today. They never did refill that rascal. 
can't find him. 40 days. What happened? What happened? Why is the resurrection so hard to believe? Well, because we've never seen it done. I've never seen anybody brought back from the physical dead. That's why it's hard for us to believe. I think it's why it's hard for them to believe. Some of them saw Lazarus raised from the dead. Some of them saw some miraculous things. But, but I think most of the people then had a struggle. And, and so they had to come up with theories as to what happened to Jesus' body. And one of the prevalent theories, the Bible even discusses this theory, is that the disciples stole Jesus' body from the grave. They, they like body snatched him and they hid him away, like buried him in another place in an unmarked tomb or something. And nobody would that way ever be the wiser. The problem with this theory that they snatched Jesus' body away is that the, the priests who were involved in, let's just say they did, execute Jesus. The, the high priests at the temple, they knew that possibility existed because somebody came to them and said, remember, he said he would rise from the dead in three days. They said, okay, cool. We're going to make sure the disciples don't steal his body and say that he did. They posted guards at the tomb of Jesus. And not like, you know, a couple of dudes they like grabbed off the street. Roman soldiers, temple guards, I, guys with some, you know, like battle experience or some authority and, and wouldn't be easily frightened, wouldn't be easily overthrown. But when Mary went to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday and she found the tomb empty and the angel appeared to her, the guards were there. And they saw the angel and these battle-hardened, tough guys passed out, blanked out. And they had to go back and report to their masters what had happened. Crazy stuff. The biblical account of this is in Matthew 28. Let's check it out. Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 to 15. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. This is right after it took place. The women are flying back. They're running back to tell the disciples and the apostles what had happened. And the guards have to go and report. And, and so they go. And the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan. And they gave the soldiers a large sum of money. My father-in-law has a theory that there's not much that time and money won't fix, right? There's not much time and money won't fix. Well, these guys subscribe to this theory that there's not much time and money won't fix. They threw some money at the guards. They're trying to fix their problem. They say, uh, you're to say that his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were asleep. And if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and we'll keep you out of trouble. I think they were more worried about keeping themselves out of trouble, just saying. So the soldiers took the money, and they did as they were instructed, and the story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Maybe that's why we still have that story circulated among conspiracy theorists and Bible doubters to this very day. It's almost, well, let's just be honest, it's more believable, isn't it? Based on what we know about the laws of nature, and we've never seen something uh, rise from the dead, nobody has ever like emerged from their grave, at least in my view, maybe you've seen it, I haven't. It's almost, e in fact, it is easier without faith to believe that maybe the disciples stole Jesus' body and hid it away. Jesus appeared to Mary, appeared to 
Cleopas and his friend. He appeared to the apostles and disciples several times, 500 at once. There was eyewitness testimony about his appearances. The only eyewitness testimony to the theory of a stolen body was the bribed guards. I don't know about you, but that kind of starts to build my faith a little bit. When there is over 500 people, there are eyewitnesses to a risen Christ, and there's a handful of guards who were bribed and had something in it for them, like save my skin, to tell about a stolen body. The 500 had nothing to gain by the risen Christ. We're going to find out in a minute, not only did they have nothing to gain, they had a lot to lose. Faith being built. Any doubters starting to maybe creep over to the other side? Not yet? Not so sure? Still think the disciples stole the body? All right. Let's check out the lives of the disciples after the resurrection. What happened with the disciples after the resurrection? Peter, according to history, now we're talking about Peter, the rock, Jesus said, that he would build his church on. Peter, who cut off the guard's ear when they came to arrest Jesus. Peter, who denied Jesus three times while Jesus was still alive. Peter spent 40 plus years professing the gospel. Not talking about a stolen body. The story never wavered. He went out and told the truth of a resurrected Jesus. 45 years, Peter lived on the run because what he was doing was just as vile in the eyes of the, the temple priests as what Jesus was doing. It was just as bad or worse. It was against the Roman law. It was against what the Jews of the time wanted. And so they sent people after Peter and the other apostles and the disciples who preached in Jesus' name. It actually helped the church spread because they were all hunkered down and cool in Jerusalem until things got hot. And people started coming to arrest them and kill them and they ran off. And Peter ran off and he preached the, the gospel of Jesus wherever he went. For 40 plus years, I think it's right around 45 years, he was out there preaching the gospel, living on the run. He never married, never had a family, never had a steady job or steady income. For 45 years, this was the life he chose. If the disciples, if the apostles stole Jesus' body, do you think Peter... The rock would have known. I think so. Like he was in the three that were real tight, inner circle of Jesus. Peter, the right-hand man, the, the one that was going to have the church built on him, the rock. He would have known. Would a man who knew that it was a lie live on the run, live in fear, live without pursuing the natural things that, that men and women pursue, a relationship with a wife, to have children, 
to have a job, a career, to earn a living, to not be in fear for his life. I don't know many who would live that life for a lie. If you want something that's more compelling, more compelling evidence, again, not proof, but more compelling evidence, let's talk about how Peter died. Most scholars believe Peter was crucified upside down. We know he was crucified for his crimes, preaching the gospel, but he considered himself unworthy to be put to death in the same way that his Savior was put to death and by his own request was crucified upside down. Crucifixion was bad enough. I cannot imagine crucifixion upside down. Now, people die for a lie all the time. People martyr themselves in the name of this religion or that God or this leader all the time, unfortunately. I don't know that any of them have ever been known to die knowing that they were dying for a lie. See, they believe the lie. They're totally bought into the lie. They're totally sold out to the lie. Peter would have known if it was a lie. He was bought in and sold out to the truth. He lived it and he died for it. I don't know anybody that would die that way, especially for something that they knew was a lie. Nothing to gain. There was nothing to gain for Peter. There was nothing to gain for any of Jesus' followers to pursue the lie after the crucifixion. What compelled these men who Jesus encountered in that room after the resurrection, all in fear and with doubts, what compelled them to go and share the gospel and to tell the truth and to love people and to heal in Jesus' name and to do the ministry of Christ? What compelled them was the resurrection, not the crucifixion. Crucifixion would have killed the movement. It was the resurrection that breathed life into these men. Still think seeing is believing? By the way, the other apostles died pretty much like Peter did. Pursued, persecuted, punished, arrested, beaten, disciplined, to death. Almost all of them. Stephen was stoned to death, the first martyr. I mean, it was not a good thing. They had nothing to continue the life for, but they all pursued preaching the gospel. If you still don't believe, you still think seeing is believing? Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you me. Me. I've got no holes in my hands or my feet. There's not a, a sword or a spear puncture in my side. But I'm a resurrected life. Because while I've never seen anybody rise physically from the dead, I've experienced resurrection in a spiritual sense in my life, a real new life. I look out in this room and I see 
several that I know your, your past and I know your present and I know that Jesus says you have a phenomenal future. You're a resurrected life, a life that was brought back from the dead in the name of Jesus because you believed. My life, starting in about fourth grade, I, I, didn't real, I, I couldn't figure out why I was here. Like, what is this life all about? Why me? Why now? Why here? What is, what is my purpose? I was seeking significance starting in about fourth grade. And I remember in elementary school, I thought, you know what? I get lots of praise at home and here at school when I do really well academically. And so I began to seek significance in academic achievement. It was cool. But it didn't answer my, my need. I didn't think I was here to pursue academics. So then I started to pursue athletic glory. Love to play sports. Man, I achieved some things athletically as far as you can in, you know, Texas high school football. I'm one of those guys that if it wouldn't have been for the knee injury, I'd be playing in the NFL today, just ask me, right? There's at least one coach in the room who knows lots of those stories, right? A lot of them are coaching today. Hey, I'm just saying, I pursued it. I did well athletically. It was empty. Boy Scouts. I'm going to be an Eagle Scout. Threw myself into the Boy Scout program. Made Eagle. It was cool. Feather in my cap, chalked it up. You know, it was cool. Yeah, I'm still unfulfilled. That wasn't my purpose. It was a nice achievement. Achievement didn't do the trick for me. It was empty. Achievement. Not the answer. Academics were not the answer. How about relationships? First, it was just hanging out with my friends, running around, doing fun stuff, chilling, having a little freedom from mom and dad as an early teenager. Got my driver's license, got a little more freedom. I pursued all of these relationships with my friends. Some were good, some not. Empty. I mean, fun, but not fulfilling. Not my purpose. Girls, hello. Girlfriends. Hey, now. Move from girlfriends to any girl. Any girl that was willing. Unfulfilling. In fact, that might have been one of the most emptying things I ever pursued. No offense to you girls. It was my problem, not y'all's. Just saying. Relationships were not the answer. Material wealth. I grew up middle class family. Mom and dad both worked. We took a vacation every year, lived in a pretty modest house, drove 20-year-old cars. You know, mom got a new car about every 10 years, but dad drove the old one forever. I learned to drive in a 1978 Suburban when I turned 16 in 1989. Mom and dad still had that 1978 Suburban at the turn of the millennium, just saying. That's the kind of family I grew up in. I was like, dude, really, dad, pass that thing on to, like, the junkyard. They eventually did, but I was in pursuit of material wealth because I grew up in this middle-class family, and I grew up in a culture in the 1980s. Some of y'all know. It was Yuppieville, man. New cars, flashy clothes, jewelry, cool stuff, man, Jaguars, and all my friends' parents, it seemed like, were driving cool cars, and they lived in the cool neighborhoods. We lived in the ghetto. I had to get a transfer to go to the high school I went to because my mom taught there. I thought it was the ghetto. It was really a pretty nice neighborhood. I'd live there today. 
So I started to pursue wealth and material things. <clears throat> I went to work while I was still in school, had no bills to pay. I made like 400 bucks a week, but that was a lot of jack for a 17-year-old kid. I started buying stuff and showing off, had a nice car, had a competition stereo system. I had Oakleys when they were new, like, you know, they were a hot new thing. Raced motorcycles, did all the fun stuff, had all the things, and, 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 and it was empty. I chased that all the way into my early 20s. I wasn't fulfilled. Status, position. One of those other things that kind of went with the material wealth, the feeling of being somebody. I'm going to be important. I need to wear my power suit and my power tie. But for me, it was back then, it was polos, Ralph Lauren polo shirts. Like if you weren't wearing those in the early 90s and late 80s, you might not have been in the cool crowd. I'm just, you know... I thought I had to have all the nice clothes. Go to all the right places and parties, hang out with all the right people. Surely I would find fulfillment in this, this status, this position. Guess what? It was empty. It was empty. Didn't do it. Finally, in my late teenage years, out of an act of desperation, I kind of shifted my gears. I'd been pursuing all of these other things that were on the right side of morality as far as I understood it. And I figured if I couldn't find fulfillment there, then maybe I could find fulfillment on the other side of morality. Like, I wasn't going to be rich and famous, but I might be able to be rich and infamous. I probably watched a few too many mob movies, but I started buying and selling Certain substances that certain law enforcement agencies might find a little bit offensive. Like I fractured a law or two here and there. Moved from buying and selling those things to consuming quite a bit of them. If I couldn't find it in the right parties, maybe I could find it in the wrong kind of parties. What I didn't realize is I wasn't living. I was circling the drain. I was dying in every one of these pursuits. I was putting myself farther and farther away from the real life and the real purpose that God had and has for me. See, my good life, it wasn't so great. My good life wasn't so great. And after pursuing all of these things, I didn't know what else to pursue. And one day, after making a really critical error in my um, illegal curbside pharmaceutical delivery business, I was facing some serious consequences in a little Texas town called Huntsville. Some of y'all know where I'm, where I'm going with this, and I'm being a little bit vague because of some who are sitting with us here today. And I was broken. And I knew about God. I wasn't raised in church. My family didn't go very often. But I had great-grandmothers that were devout Christians, two of them, great-grandmothers that prayed for me and told me they prayed for me, that wanted the best for me, that believed in me, that loved me in spite of who I was. And I thought, well, maybe they had something. 
And I threw my hands up at this broken point in my life, and I said, okay, if you're real, what am I here for? I'm going to pursue you for a little while and test the waters. And my life was changed because of it. Resurrected. Moved from walking dead to walking in real life. I never dreamed I would live to see 30 years old. When I was 18, my goal was to party out. Never thought I'd see 30. I turned 40 last Wednesday. I have a wife and three beautiful children. The Lord has blessed me with a ministry where over the last 14, 15 years, whatever it's been, 13 years, I don't even know anymore. I've had the privilege of sharing my story and his story, my place in his story, with hundreds, maybe thousands, I don't know, but certainly hundreds of people. Some have heard my story and walked on. Didn't make a difference. Their faith wasn't built big enough yet. Some made faith decisions right there. They heard the story of a resurrected Christ. They saw in me a resurrected life. And they knew that they had a purpose and a place in God's plan too. A place in His story. If my life's not enough, if the Word of God, the disciples' lives, their deaths is not enough, would you consider the thousands that I've seen in my own ministry who have made faith decisions to follow Jesus and who have walked in resurrected life? Would you consider the testimony of millions, hundreds of millions, perhaps, over the course of human history who have placed their faith in Jesus, who have walked out of a living death and into a real and glorious life in Jesus. He's God's Son. He's the Savior of mankind. He is the resurrected Lord. The Word says so. The evidence points to it. I don't believe there's any greater evidence or any greater builder of our faith than the stories of resurrected lives, the stories of sinners just like you, yeah, because you didn't need me to point that out for you. You already know. You already know. I listed off a whole lot of my sins, a whole lot of my selfish ambitions, a whole lot of my prideful stuff. You identified with some, at least some. Some of you might have identified with all. God bless you. I hope you have faith. There's no greater evidence than the people who today walk with Jesus the people who yesterday and the, the generations before have walked with Jesus. No greater evidence than the stories of their lives. No greater evidence than the story of Jesus' own life, death, and resurrection. The essayist James Allen Francis wrote about this back in the 1920s. It's a quote out of one of my favorite books, Why Mike's Not a Christian. I've taught so many Bible studies out of this book over the years. Uh, it's just the, the, the basics of our faith, but this is a quote that I love. And I want to read this quote to you about the reality of Jesus, about the life of Jesus, about the evidence of his life, death, and resurrection, and what it means. He says, nearly 2,000 years ago, in an obscure village, a child was born of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked as a carpenter until he was 30. Then for three years, he became an itinerant preacher. 
This man never went to college. He never went to seminary. He never wrote a book. He never held a public office. He never had a family nor owned a home. He never put his foot inside of a big city nor traveled more than 200 miles from the place of his birth. And though he never did any of these things that are normally associated or accompany greatness, throngs of people followed him. He had no credentials but himself. While he was still young, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His followers ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial, then was sentenced to death on a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property that he had on this earth, a simple coat that he had worn. His body was then laid in a borrowed grave provided by a compassionate friend. But three days later, this man, as he had claimed, rose from the dead, living proof that he was, as he had claimed, the Savior that God had sent, the incarnate Son of God. 19, we'll call it 20 today, because the millennium passed just a few years ago, right? 13 of them. 20 centuries have come and gone. And today, the risen Lord Jesus Christ is the central figure of the human race. On our calendars, his birth divides history into two eras, B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Two eras of history divided by the birth of this man. One day every week is set aside in remembrance of him. Our two most important holidays celebrate his birth, Christmas, and his resurrection, Easter. On church steeples around the world, his cross has become the symbol of victory over sin and death. This one man's life has furnished the theme for more songs, books, poems, paintings than any other person or event in history. Thousands of colleges Hospitals, orphanages, and other institutions have been founded in honor of this one who gave his life for us. All of the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the governments that ever sat, and the kings that ever reigned have not changed the course of history as much as this one solitary life. The one solitary life is the life of Jesus. Jesus, who came and lived for you. Jesus, who died for you and who rose again for you. You still like the disciples on that day when he appeared? Are you filled with fear right now? If you don't know Jesus, if you don't have that faith, that fear may be welling up inside. Right now, the doubts may be tugging at your heart and your mind. You want proof? Like Thomas had proof? Look at John. John chapter 20. Verses 28 and 29. 
Jesus did appear to Thomas. And after he appeared, as we read a few moments ago, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas got it. He got it. Because he got to put his hands on Jesus. He got to touch him. He got to put his hands in the holes. And he got it. And Jesus said to Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We can't see Jesus today. We can't put our hands in the holes or in his pierced side. But Jesus left us an abundance of evidence to build our faith so that we might believe without seeing. The Word of God is the story and the account of Jesus, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. It started thousands of years before His birth when prophecies were given and the future was foretold. He fulfilled every one of those prophecies. His story was left to us in writing that we might have evidence and have faith and believe. His story was left to us through the lives of those first followers, the disciples, the apostles, who if they would have known, would not have lived or died the way that they did. If they would have known that it was a lie, it wasn't a lie, it was true. And they lived and died the way they did so that you and I might have evidence enough to have faith in what we cannot see, so that we might believe in Jesus and have real life here, now, on earth, today, and in eternity with Him in heaven. Jesus lived he died, He rose, and He lives today for you. The band is going to come up and play a song. Lead us in worshiping our risen Lord so that we might process for a moment the evidence that He has given us and that you might exercise what today might be newfound faith in Him. We're going to teach you how this song goes. Um, initially, we're going to sing you the chorus a couple of times so that you can sing it along with us. This song was um, put on my heart, oh, I don't know, five weeks ago or so. And uh, the first Sunday that I'm back leading worship, Todd delivers this message, and the words could just, I couldn't have planned it. Let me put it that way. 
this is certainly of God. So we're going to teach you the chorus, and uh, you guys listen and learn, and then as we get through the song, you can sing along with us. I believe that there is something more than I can see. I believe that there is someone holding on to me. Sometimes I won't feel it, but that don't change a thing. Cause it's my faith that I I 
Addressing a group who was sitting in the room with him, looking at him. Stop doubting and believe. And we wrapped up today hearing Jesus say, Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And as I was standing over here listening and worshiping God, praising God, and believing in God, believing in the resurrection of Jesus, it reminded me of a time where Jesus was sitting with his inner circle, the twelve, and he asked them, who, who do the people say that I am? And they answered. And then he asked them the real question, the central question of this life. He said, who do you say that I am? It's a question every one of us has to answer at some point. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you today? Is he a risen Lord and Savior? Is he God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords? Or is he a myth and a legend, a liar? and a lunatic. Who is Jesus to you? 